welcome to the journal.e's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what's the story with the EU army? Now, before we headed into the European elections, we put together a questionnaire to audit all 59 candidates. We asked them nine questions hitting the topics that voters seem to be caring about the most. Interestingly, when we took a look at their answers and how readers were responding to them, the ones that people were most keen to see the candidates' stances on were, unsurprisingly, Brexit, of course, but also their opinion on an EU army. Irish neutrality has been something and and continues to be something that people in this country seem to be proud of, that they hold dear in the main. So anything that puts that in jeopardy, even in the slightest, will always raise an eyebrow or two. So this talk of PESCO and the idea that this might lead to an EU army in the years or decades to come has sparked conversation and a lot of debate. So to tell us why that is, I'm joined in studio by former Irish army soldier, defence analyst and author Declan Power and the journal.e's reporter Ronan Duffy, who has been doing a significant amount of work in this area. Hi guys. Hello. Uh, Ronan, first things first, we don't have an EU army. What do we have at the moment? Well, we have a defence force that's, you know, made up of our Air Corps and Naval Service. And a new army, and it's involved in you know the defence and security of the state, and of course it is involved in peacekeeping abroad and peace enforcement and those kind of things that are you know very clearly mandated by the government. Um, but we are not involved in any kind of EU army because it doesn't exist as it is, and that's kind of where the debate is at the moment. So why is this talk of an army happening? Well, I think the first thing to point out is it's not really surprising that we're having talk about it now because every time Ireland talks about Europe, whether it's about a treaty or whether it's about electing MEPs, you know, talk of EU army and militarism is always brought into it. And what's interesting on the face of it is, you know, you mentioned there when we audited every candidate, like every single person we talked to said they're against the EU army. So on the face of it, there's not much of a debate here, but it's when you get down on the particular issues as to what they're for, or perhaps when you talk about if parties are playing politics with this issue, that's kind of where we see a lot of the debate. So where what are the arguments about if everyone's against an EU army? What is the argument about? Well, I suppose the argument has been brought up a lot because even if Ireland may be opposed to an EU army, we do have some people, very powerful people, you know, like Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron, who have said that they are in favour of this kind of idea of an EU army. And that's become an issue. And that's why people have, you know, seized on that term. But we also have, and you mentioned in your introduction, the idea of PESCO and what that is. It's a permanent structured cooperation uh, of the European uh, Union on defence. 25 states have signed up to it, including Ireland. And that's also a bit of a debate as to what we should contribute to that and if it's a good thing. So just to bring it back, Declan, can you explain what PESCO actually is? PESCO stands for Permanent Structured Cooperation. It's a, an initiative designed for European, primarily European Union states, but not exclusively, not at this time anyway, to come together and work and cooperate on military and security initiatives. Uh, so you could have uh, countries like the Benelux countries uh, who uh, cooperate on a lot of security and defence initiatives if they're purchasing equipment or purchasing, I think they're in the process of pr- trying to purchase a naval vessel that can be used for over-the-horizon support operations or as a hospital ship in crisis management operations. And they will share the costs and they will share the use of it. So you have Belgium, the Netherlands, uh, Luxembourg cooperating on that. Um, There are various other variations on that. And the, the way it works is countries opt into things, initiatives, projects, missions that they think 
suit their foreign policy. They are not forced or committed to any particular uniform thing. But once they commit to something, they're expected to adhere to that. You know, and, and it could be just for a limited period. The more pertinent thing that should be realised, uh, some critics of it in this country who talk about the worries of it upping our defence budget. But it's up to the state, the member state, to decide what they will contribute uh, in terms of spend on a particular project or mission. And the, all that the EU ask is that they adhere to that. So, you know, Ireland hasn't really committed itself, even though we've signed up to it, we haven't really seriously committed ourselves to any major initiatives or missions. We've contributed, uh, agreed to contribute one or two Defence Force personnel to some human rights related initiatives or gender manning campaigns, uh, but nothing of a serious nature, not yet. What is important, though, for us is it does give us a mechanism at this time that maybe post-Brexit, if Britain is out of the European Union, that it can allow us to have some sort of a, a funding mechanism to help with coordinated uh, security and defence initiatives between these islands, uh, whether that's maritime or air security and defence. That may not last, though. The French particularly want PESCO to stay a European Union affair. But at the moment, third countries can be involved in it, according to the, the mechanism. So in, in short, PESCO is a fairly elastic concept that allows for cooperation between clusters of European Union states on defence and security issues. It doesn't and this is important people understand that, it doesn't invoke a mutual defence clause. There is no mutual defence uh, element that uh, binds the states to it. And it's on a, an ongoing kind of ad hoc basis. So uh, projects will come and go. So we, we've signed up to PESCO, but we don't necessarily have to sign up to any of the, the initiatives it, it takes on. Yeah, we can pick and choose. Yeah, I, I think one of the things is, is that when you look at the debate, there's two elements of the debate. First is Ireland's involvement in something. And the second thing is perhaps some of the more left-wing candidates in the European elections. And you, you look at especially Sinn Féin on this. They've said it's not just about whether Ireland's involvement is PESCO is large or not, but it's about the wider issue of the European Union focusing its gaze on, on militarism, for example. And, you know, you have some critics would point to some of the, the operations as part of PESCO. I had a, had a look at them myself and one of the was a you know a deployable special op operations force there's a thing like a joint eu intelligence school and people say like we're spending money on these projects when we could be spending on more greater social initiatives so that's another kind and of and do we have to spend money or we can choose the ones that we like and spend money on those well the, the countries and um, that have signed up to pesco have collectively said that collectively we will spend two percent of our gdp on defence spending. Now, that doesn't mean that Ireland has to spend 2%. That just means that collectively we have to do so. So, you know, whatever it's spent on, Ireland won't be picking, won't necessarily have to, you know, invest more in these. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a couple of points there you raised. They're quite interesting, quite important. It, we're talking collectively, as I understand that. It's not Ireland being asked to spend more. That's coming from the spend within the, whatever, think about it like the way you pay your income tax and the state decides how that's spent. So we're not spending, we're, whatever monies we're contributing to the European Union, Collectively, they may decide to use it in different ways. Now, let's come back to some of the points you mentioned. It is criminally negligent to send troops abroad without some form of special operations uh, force support, uh, depending on the nature of the mission, or without any intelligence capability. Not that long ago, I wrote a book about troops who fought at a place called Jadaval in the Congo. And it was a classic example of the UN acting in a negligent fashion during that period without proper recourse to intelligence gathering and analysis and proper recourse to quick reaction support in the field. That has changed How does now. PESCO make that situation not occur again? Well, it doesn't make it not occur again. You can't wave a magic wand, but what you can do is take uh, prudent 
and uh, precautionary steps. Now, we should also mention at this point that Ireland has signed up to the EU battlegroup concept and we have been involved in training for that for quite some time, uh, mainly the Swedish-led and German-led battle. Can you explain what the battle group is? So the battlegroup concept is a a system by which you would have a group of uh, EU nations. There are a number of them within the EU and the one we tend to be involved with most has been either Swedish-led or German-led. And they are on standby for uh, peacekeeping, peace enforcement, crisis management missions that usually would, that the EU would deem uh, necessary to deploy uh, an expeditionary force, you know, outside of Europe usually, um, and with a UN mandate. They've never been used. And this, uh, but the point is that it has been something that we have contributed, usually specialist troops, uh, in terms of um, the, what's known as ISTAR, uh, intelligence, um, surveillance and reconnaissance and target acquisition. This is a fairly specialised entity, a company of troops, and indeed EOD, bomb disposal people as well. But they don't, the majority of EU nations aren't interested in an EU army. And let's define what an EU, what an army is. An army is a, a single military force that has an integrated command and one straightforward political leadership. It it would be a long, long time if the EU ever achieves that and certainly nowhere near on the trajectory for that. And while there are some supporters of that overall concept in Germany and France, the majority of member states, including a lot of uh, people in Germany and France, see NATO as the appropriate formation for the kinds of things. And, and I think one of the important things on that is, you know, even if there are elements within, say, France and Germany who are, you know, maybe predisposed to the idea of a European army, when it comes to matters of defence, the European Council has to act unanimously. So that, in effect, means that, you know, ministers and you know, heads of state who, who make up the, the council, you know, they have an, an essential veto over these kind of matters. So if one country was to be opposed to it, that pretty much brings an end to it, which is another thing that people point to when they say, listen, it's just a bit of scaremongering because we can very easily kind of shut these things down. Declan, is this or could it be seen as a stepping stone to an EU army? Um, it's far from it because it's not. there is no unified uh, single command. What PESCO is allowing uh, is for smaller missions of, uh, of a different nature. Uh, it's not trying to... The, to create a European army will be trying to create a formation to rival NATO. Now, most members of the European Union are members of NATO as well, so they don't want to see this duplicated. And curiously enough, from Ireland's point of view in terms of foreign policy, our biggest ally in this was the UK, because the UK was totally against any kind of serious heavyweight European Union military development, because they didn't want it to jeopardise the NATO system. The, The reality is lots of countries want to have Europe have a mechanism that they can engage in peacekeeping, uh, peace enforcement, crisis management activities. Kind of the, 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 a mixture of soft power and, and medium power at best. And that when it comes to the heavier weight stuff, NATO will kick in. Now, we have a relationship there as well. It's through the Partnership for Peace. It means that we can and have done par- uh, participate. We have participated on NATO-led missions. If you look at Irish soldiers on parade, young soldiers today, you will see they have chest fulls of medals that include medals from the UN, the EU and NATO. Why is that? Because we signed up to something called the St. Petersburg Tasks uh, some years ago, which suits our foreign policy. And it means, again, as members of Partnership for Peace, we have brought our military up to a NATO standard in terms of command and control. We can plug into them as we require, but we are not bound by the Mutual Defence Treaty and we are not signed up nor are we likely to be in the future, for a number of reasons, to any mutual defence pact. 
which is what NATO is. It has Article 5, which states that if one member state is attacked, all must go to its, 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 its aid militarily. But the Lisbon Treaty has Article 4.2, which requires all member states to give assistance to any country that comes under a form of attack, be it terrorist or otherwise, or a natural disaster, and to give all necessary aid that it can be it military or otherwise. So we are signed, we have kind of signed up to a mutual assistance. But as it stands, due to Ireland's kind of foreign policy stance, due to our constitution, which at this point prohibits us signing a mutual defence pact, if we required some form of international military assistance, we and it states this in the 2015 White Paper on Defence and the, I think of the similar year, the foreign policy document Global Ireland, we would be relying on the United Nations Security Council to, if, if we were subject to some form of attack. That's officially where it stands. And that's assuming that one of the members doesn't veto an approach. We don't have any mechanism formally that we can call on anyone's assistance. And just to speak about the constitutionality of it, because it was something you mentioned there, that is something that is perhaps, you know, quite clear cut on the issue. I mean, we have Article 29.9 of the Constitution here, the Irish Constitution, I have it here, and it says the state shall not adopt a decision taken by the European Council to establish a common defence pursuant to Article 4.2 of the European Union, of the Treaty of the European Union, where that common defence would include the state. Now, basically what that means is that Ireland can't enter into a common defence, and a common defence is generally understood to mean an EU army. So that kind of, the lock is kind of there. Can we explain the difference between what a common defence is and what PESCO is, which is a permanent structured defence cooperation arrangement? arrangement that there is obviously difference in words there but what's yes. the difference in what they both look like they don't require you could be involved in a, in a cooperative arrangement with a cluster of states uh, but you're not signing up to a, an everlasting mutual defense arrangement that if one of them is attacked you will automatically uh, commit to their defense and they to yours that's what it means and and it's quite clear so and this is important to people to understand because there are different countries have different concepts of neutrality. And really, in this day and age, and I would go, say going back to and including the Second World War, we have been a country that has had what could be formally called a non-aligned status or a pick-and-choose status uh, because we didn't sign up to NATO. Our state really uh, frames it in such a way that we're not a member of NATO, therefore we're a neutral nation. The Swedes, the Austrians, the Finns don't use that terminology and they're probably more practical and more accurate. If we were genuinely pursuing a, 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 a proper concept of neutrality, we shouldn't be in the European Union, we shouldn't even be in the UN. But then it's impossible for states to stay out of those kinds of things because even the Swiss joined the UN and they used to be seen as the, the ultimate neutrals neutral. But then if you, and I've, I've done some work with the Swiss on security projects abroad, they have quite a close relationship with the United States. So really there is no such thing as a pure neutral. And just to mention, you know, some of the difficulties in this debate is that one of the things that we've seen, particularly in the European election debate, one of the main points, uh, one of the prickliest points of each debate we've seen on television is the Sinn Féin have pointed to individual members of the European People's Party, which is mm. uh, Shin, uh, Fianna Gael's grouping in the European Union, and ALDE, which is Fianna Fáil's, and some of those groups, some of those members, like Manfred Weber of the EPP and Giva Hofstad, have pointed, have said that they're in approval of the idea of an EU army. So it's very easy for that for parties like Sinn Féin to point to that and say, listen, that is the case and that's what they want. But is there actually anything in the PESCO documents that could see Ireland's responsibilities or role grow in the future? Well, I, I, not, nothing that obliges Ireland to do anything necessarily, apart from the fact that, you know, we have said that we will increase our spending, but there's nothing that tells Ireland that you must do this or you must sign up to this. So in that sense, um, no, there's nothing that obliges us to do it. And in terms of the 
defense forces does it change their work at all does it change their makeup or um i guess anything that their personnel will see in the next well what, well, what they would have what people who proponents of it would argue that it will change it for the better in that you know we have seen that defense forces their their work has been expanded and we will see a greater if we see different natural disasters we saw um the irish defense forces when they were deployed to the mediterranean there are these kind of uh, operations that we have taken part in and pesco in one sense, what, what people say is that it will help Irish Defence Forces have the correct um, training and have the correct equipment to, to, to participate in these things. So in that sense, that, that's how it will, will affect us. Declan, when you're talking about militarisation, what a lot of people will talk about is um, the industry, the armament industry, the amount of money that is spent, the amount of um, research that goes into it, things like the European Defence Agency. Like, what do they do? Well, let me tell you a little bit about the European Defence Agency. Part of it is about procurement of weapon system. I mean, if you're moving forward on those things, you need to do research. The European Defence Agency fund a huge amount of research in universities around Europe. They're currently funding a programme in NUI Galway where some leading researchers have developed a capacity uh, to develop baby wipes that can reduce the harm of chemical weapons effects that can be airdropped into regions where civilians have suffered that. That's one particular example of what EDA do. Our own recently retired Lieutenant Colonel Ray Lane, who is a, a bomb disposal specialist and used to... Uh, head up the bomb disposal school in the Korra, did a, a long tour of duty in Afghanistan as an advisor to the leading American general there, where he managed to create training programmes aimed at both the coalition forces and the Afghani military and police in bomb disposal, in recognition of devices, and saved countless lives. And he managed to do that because he sourced funding through the European Defence Agency and through NATO. The reality is there are requirements if you want to put a military force in the field. The reality is the European Defence Agency fund things other than offensive uh, uh, munitions procurement. Ronan, Declan's talked a lot about NATO there, but NATO is kind of changing at the moment because of um, how America views it and particularly how Trump views it. So does that change the narrative around the EU army? Well, 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 Trump's basic argument is that the US pays by far and away the most amount of money towards NATO. And, you know, of course it does by far and away. So any indication that US commitment to, to NATO is wavering is a big problem for EU leaders, especially at a time when Russia has redrawn European borders by force, as is the case in Ukraine. Um, and also, like, another thing is that um, after the US, the UK is the second biggest spending in NATO. Um, and, of course, it is leaving the EU. So when that happens... 80% of NATO funding is going to come from outside the EU. And that doesn't particularly sit well with people like Macron and Merkel. Really what we should be doing is continuing to lure the Americans to continue their involvement because they have a level of capability when it comes to hard defence that no other country in the world can equal. And I think most thinkers and observers in that space would would agree that the best system for security in Europe is to have on one hand NATO to do the heavy lifting and on the other hand to have the EU to do a lot of other intricate things that sometimes require military activities, sometimes require civilian activities and to be able to combine the two as outlined in the common security and defence policy arrangements. Ronan, is there any possibility that we actually will get an EU army and just Ireland won't be involved in it? Well, I think on these matters like we discussed, when it comes to defence, you know, uniformity is very very important and everyone would have to be on board so you know in the short term medium term it's highly unlikely that 
you know, we're going to have enough countries or all the countries are going to want to go down this path. So it's not really going to happen in that way. What perhaps is more healthy is that we're talking about it because, like we mentioned, we do have issues around Russia. We have issues around America's commitment to NATO. So these are issues that are important to be talking about. Perhaps, you know, around election time when politics involved, it's not the right time to be talking about them, though. Yeah, like the world is changing so quickly. And you do have Germany and France and generally when Germany and France want something to happen in the EU, they can get the support. Um, so are we just going to be talking about this for years? Well, I think you mentioned two two countries there, Germany and France, and we have Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron. If it is something that they keep talking about and they keep banging on this show, of course we're going to keep talking about it because they are going to drive the conversation within the EU even more so when Britain leaves. So, you know, it is perhaps something that is going to come up again. And perhaps Ireland, we, we, we might think we know where we stand on it, but perhaps we need to have a talk about it again and be clear. Great. Thanks so much for joining us, Declan and Ronan. Thank you for listening to The Explainer. This episode was brought to you by our assistant producer and tech operator, Nikki Ryan, our producer, Aoife Barry, and our executive producer, Christine Bowen. Thank you to our contributors, Declan Power and Ronan Duffy. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and we'll be back next week with a brand new topic. In the meantime, why not check out some of our other episodes? Last week, we looked at the new heartbeat bills in the US and what they mean for abortion services. There are also episodes on Patrick Quirk's conviction, measles and vaccinations, John Delaney and the FAI, returning ISIS members to Ireland, and why Dublin doesn't have a supervised injection centre yet. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you and catch you next time.